This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal, all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. And we would like to let you know that this is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics. We also would like to give a shout out to Buoyancy Digital, which is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series. A digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant advice across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying and organizational training for media publishers. Check out Buoyancy Digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Hello, Fred. Good to see you today. Yes, you as well. Although it's just your profile photo <laughs> this time. And yours is working for some reason. Interesting. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Dr. Wendy Oliver is from Nashville, Tennessee. She has authored digital teaching standards and developed software that allows teachers to self-assess their knowledge of digital instruction. She's the Chief Learning Officer for Edison Learning, leading efforts to deliver high-quality, innovative digital learning solutions to hundreds of schools across the U.S. 
And she's also the author of a book for parents, Not Your Mama's Classroom, What You Need to Know as a Parent About Your Child's Digital Education, and a book coming up for educators, Not Your Mama's Classroom, Facilitating Engaging Student-Centered Digital Instruction. I am excited to talk with you today, Wendy. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Thank you both for having me. I'm really excited to contribute to your discussion. Thank you. We're excited to have you as well. And this is a a podcast that is releasing on two platforms. Wendy's Building the Bridge podcast, which is a podcast that she's been doing for uh, some time now. And this will be a a good conversation. So if you're new to Cybertraps, we invite you to follow us at cybertraps.com and subscribe. And if you're new to Building the Bridge, we invite you to uh, check out her podcast and, and sign up there. Anything else you want to say about that, Wendy? The only thing I would say is I think we have a similar mission, and it's an opportunity to educate both parents uh, and educators on some of the transitions to digital and online learning. So I think it's a great fit, and that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to be here with you all today. Let's start talking about that. We were all thrust into this, and some people were more prepared than others. Some things are going to go back to quote-unquote normal but that's not necessarily the case for everything. And going digital is not something that parents and students can just opt out of. So what kinds of things do parents and students need to be thinking about to make the system work better, especially around things like rights, privacy, safety, security, things like that? So I think you said it beautifully when you said we've been thrust into this. So many teachers and families overnight in the spring because of the pandemic, had to learn how to learn in a remote fashion. Um, Oftentimes we call it online learning. I call it remote 911 um, because everybody went home and all of a sudden we had to be online. So there are, you know, so many impacts of this. And I do believe that it is going to significantly change how we look at our education system in the future. One area that I think is critical is as much as we've been able to close what's been called the digital divide in the past because of the funding that came out and the opportunities to provide equipment and access to students, this experience that we've had has also really shined a really bright light on the fact that we have a lot of inequities in public education. There are so many students that just simply don't have the access to learn remotely. And because of that, we we keep hearing terms like the COVID slide or learning loss, when in actuality, that's where we have failed, quite frankly, these students, because we have not been able to, for almost a year for some students, provide education to them because of their socioeconomic status or because of where they live. And so because of that, there have been significant changes in sending devices home with students, which, of course, creates Pandora's box for cybersecurity. So I really think we're going to see a significant change in education. I'll throw some statistics at you. In a survey of 32,000 people that the Learning Council did, 34 uh, to 42% of the respondents said that they have transitioned to either charter school, private, or homeschool as a result of the pandemic. And what that says to me is parents are realizing now they have a choice. They didn't realize that before. 
I don't think. I think it was kind of here's our public education system. This is what we're required uh, to do and to participate in. And now, because districts had to offer families the option of online, many of them are going to be looking to online learning as a resource. And they're also going to be looking to blended learning to see more educational technology in the classroom. And we're going to have the blending learning expert, Heather Staker, on the show here in a couple of weeks, and that's going to be a great conversation. What I appreciate that you said there, Wendy, is that families didn't realize they had a choice, but the reality is is that families are responsible for educating their children and the state steps in to assist and help, but really it's on families and they've always had choices in education. And you're right. They just didn't know they did, but now that they realize there are other options out there, I think people are going to continue going towards those options that work best for their family. And on your podcast where you interviewed your third grade daughter, which was such a great episode. She said that one of her friends went to the beach and was able to join class from vacation at the beach. And I remember several years ago as a teacher, when kids would go on vacation and the place where I lived, kids went on a lot of vacation and they would, they would miss class. And, and that doesn't have to be the case anymore because we have the technology to make it so they can still be part of that. And so as you think about that, especially as it comes to student privacy and safety, people in school are going to know now that somebody, for example, is on vacation. And Fred, I think it's a great opportunity for you to step in and think about some of the uh, ethical concerns or safety issues with that, where we know more where people are than we have before. That's just a great segue. And, And Wendy, if I can just put a pin in one thing, because I think that you'll be uniquely qualified to address it. And that's to circle back and talk a little bit about how we maintain standards that contribute to effective learning in a much more fragmented learning environment, which I think is one of the trade-off concerns that you have to confront. But real quickly, with respect to the ethical issues that are, re- that are raised by remote learning, I've been working on this with some different teacher groups and the thing that leaps immediately to mind are two things. Number one, the impact of remote learning on the educator's privacy in the sense that teachers are now opening up their homes electronically to their students. And it's it's shrinking even further the rather tiny zone of privacy that teacher, teachers enjoy to begin with. So that's an ongoing concern for educators. And then the flip side of that is that educators are now seeing much more about the home lives of their students. And that's raising some uncomfortable issues in terms of the educator's access to information about the kids, which can be discomforting at best and and potentially problematic at worst. And then also expanding the zone of necessary reporting if they observe or hear something that Uh, triggers that duty. And so I think this is, (laughs) it's absolutely amazing that we were able to adapt to the pandemic. But as we did so, these other issues have arisen that we need to pay some attention to. I have to tell you, Jethro, thank you for the compliment on the podcast with my third grader. And I have to confess that I'm pretty biased, right? That was my favorite uh, interview thus far. (laughs) As well, it should be. (laughs) (laughs) And interestingly, I interviewed a teacher 
as well. And it, it was really fascinating to hear the differences in the teacher's perception of the remote classroom and then listening to a student, even if she was my own daughter. But to your point, we have absolutely expanded what this impact of remote learning looks like on teachers. And, and I love that you brought up, and I'm interested to hear you talk more about necessary reporting for, for what they may see online when they're going into homes of families. And what I think has really happened is because parents are now also seeing directly into the classroom. And in many cases, they, they have not been able to do that because oftentimes in education, um, Jethro, I know as teachers, we can be guilty of going in the classroom and closing the door and no one really knows what we're doing inside that classroom. It's just in good faith. And as we've made this transition, parents now have seen more into the classroom. They may be seeing that their child is really only actively participating three hours a day, but they're in school over seven. And so what does that really mean? I also think that we're training a generation on a different way to look at education. So as these teenagers now, I mean, some of these kids were seniors as they move into the workforce or into college and then have their own children, their expectations are going to be quite different as well of the classroom. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch as we transition education into a true gig economy because of the resources uh, and the opportunities online. It's going to be really interesting and, and quite frankly, fascinating to watch and see what that implementation actually looks like. Well, Wendy, I'm glad you brought up the point about the teachers now having a much bigger audience than they may have had previously, because one of the things that is of particular interest to me is how we navigate the challenging social and political environment in our country right now. And there has definitely been a surge in my research files of instances where parents are complaining about what they hear in the Zoom call. And there have even been instances in which parents have basically hijacked the class to argue with the teacher. And I, that's a direct byproduct of what you're talking about, this greater awareness of what's actually being taught. It's interesting uh, that you said that parents are hijacking the Zoom instruction because I, I've also seen that and as a parent and and also as an educator, that's really alarming because in the classroom, in our previous confines, the teacher is the expert. And so it's really interesting to watch uh, the dynamics shift. And I think that will also be what drives the change that we're going to be seeing in education. I'm really glad you said that, Wendy, because that's a, a key area that the, the teacher used to be the expert and the only one who had the information. And what is very clear now is that the teacher does not have, is not the only one who has the information. And if, if we are still focused on a system that emphasizes knowledge about facts and information that is easy to look up on the internet, then the teacher rightfully so, does not have much meaning or value in that scenario. And that's certainly not what I'm advocating that we do. I propose that we change how we're educating kids to focus more on understanding that those things are out there and they can get that information, but instilling the ideas of 
critical thinking and understanding how to come to a conclusion based on the information that you can gather, that's what we need teachers for. And for a teacher to think that she's just there to dispense information, we're past that and and we need to move on from that. And as we think about this digital approach now, we see that teachers have to compete with the other things that are out there and they need to make their classes meaningful and interesting and engaging so that kids want to participate in them and not be on TikTok in the background as much as they can be. So I am so happy to hear you bring up engagement and critical thinking because, you know, what we're seeing as a society, and this is probably a completely uh, different episode, uh, but AI is going to really change our workforce. And by AI, I'm referring to artificial intelligence. And if we don't train this generation to think critically, creativity, and all those higher order thinking skills, then they're, they're going to be at a loss when they move into the workforce. And that means we have failed them as parents and as educators. And so as we talk about what does engagement look like online, a lot of times people think engagement means they're paying attention. But in reality, when we talk about engagement, we're talking about those higher levels of webs, uh, DOK, or the higher levels of blooms where, like you mentioned, they're, they're thinking critically, they're analyzing. And so that is very different than memorizing facts that they could look up on Google any day of the week. In my interview with Seth Godin, he called that type of engagement you're talking about enrollment. And I think that's a much better phrase for it, that kids have to choose to enroll. Nobody can force them to enroll. We can force them to be engaged by putting something shiny in front of them, but that doesn't mean that they're enrolled in the process of learning. I think that's great. That's interesting. I'm going to I'm going to borrow that term. I'll certainly give credit where credit is due. I like that a lot. Another point that I'll make, and this is something that I've learned through multiple conversations, is because of the immediate transition online, a lot of parents looked to the all the quote unquote free resources, which, as you all know, free is never free. Data is our currency. But the parents were looking at those free resources online in order to help engage or enroll further, further develop their children to make sure that they weren't missing out. That has had a significant impact on expectations of parents for the education system and for teachers as well, in that now families are expecting commercial grade quality. And in reality, I have to reflect and think as a teacher, I wasn't trained to provide commercial grade resources to students, and I wasn't trained necessarily in how to teach children to think critically and be prepared for this economy. There has to be a period of grace while we allow our educators to transition and shift gears. That's a lovely phrase, a period of grace, Wendy, because it it seems to me to be the kind of thing that we also need to extend to parents, if you will in terms of their transition into better guiding their children in terms of the use of technology. The flip side, the challenge to that is that there are significant risks associated with the use of technology and you you don't want to have a child who makes one of those mistakes. 
hopefully we can we can encourage parents to keep that period of grace as short as possible but i will say that i was pleased to hear you reference artificial intelligence or ai because that's really in the wheelhouse of the research that i do the impact of technology on society and i think your observation about how we train our teachers is particularly apt because only now, I think, are we beginning to change the focus for teachers from obviously knowing their subject matter area and being prepared to present that to students to knowing their subject matter area, but then getting students to think critically about it, which is a different mission. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. You know, when I reflect back on my time in the education system, which we won't discuss how long ago that was, the teachers that knew the most were always the ones that everybody looked up to, or they were the hardest teachers. And in reality, that has shifted drastically. But there is going to have to be an opportunity for training those teachers and for helping them to transition in such a way that they can meet expectations. What I find in education is that change is very slow. Well, change was not slow with the pandemic. Everyone was thrown into it, as we've already said. And so that, because that expectation was changed overnight, I truly believe that is what is gonna propel and drive our education system to change. And in addition to that, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Paula Love on building the bridge. And she is a funding expert to listen to her talk about all the different funding opportunities that have come as a result of the pandemic. It is amazing to me that all all of these dollars are out there for schools to, to change and to deal with this current situation. And it is the first time as someone who managed a federal grant years ago, it's the first time that I have ever seen funding with so few strings attached for school districts. And that I'm so hopeful will be used to change what we see as our public education today. The idea of funding is a real challenge for schools because there's a lot of money in education, but every single school feels like they don't have enough money to do what they need to. And it's I believe, because of what you're talking about with those strings attached. And that's really challenging for schools to figure out how to use that little money they have for the different things that they know they need to do. I think some of the things that that definitely schools should be spending their money on are teaching about ethics in technology spaces, understanding how to use those appropriately, and then thinking really hard about the kind of technology that we buy and whether or not that is furthering our mission and and what we want to have happen with our students. So if you're buying a piece of software that is teaching kids that it's okay to, you know, have surveillance for example, if you're buying software that says that treats kids as criminals who just haven't been caught yet, then you're going down a wrong path and you need to make a better decision about that if you're so worried about cheating or about kids not doing what they should be doing, then you're you're saying something with that purchase. And I think it's really vital to make those decisions in a way that is very ethical and honors people as individuals and doesn't punish them for being human beings. Well, and to your point around the types of software that are being purchased to minimize cheating, 
in reality to you know to go back to what we were said a few minutes ago if the curriculum that is being delivered is truly engaging and if the assessments are authentic and we're doing real world problems and truly preparing these kids for what they're going to experience then cheating shouldn't that is not just an optimistic outlook but cheating shouldn't happen if the students are truly engaged. And in reality, if the assignments that they have are project-based learning and authentic assessments, then in those situations, they can't cheat. Well, Wendy, if I can toss in one other concept that I think is important. When schools look at the software that they implement, and this ties in with what Jethro is saying, you're really, in a sense, training students for the kind of world you expect them to grow up in. And and if, as Jethro said, if we're treating them as kind of minority report candidates, people who just haven't been caught yet, then that's going to really shape how they view the world. Some time ago when I did Cyber Traps for the Young, I was fairly clear on the fact that I don't think that uh, hidden surveillance software, even on your child's computer, is a good idea because it teaches them that they are subject to hidden surveillance. And I don't think that is a positive social good. I, I would have to agree with that. One of the things that I recommend to parents to help mitigate situations and to prepare their students and their children is having open and honest dialogue being very honest about what is cyberbullying. Why do we want to not have our iPad in, our, in your bedroom at night? It's just not a good idea, but why, right? It's not just that we monitor it and shut the device off. It's a conversation because this is the world in which these children live and they need to be made aware of the consequences of some of the decisions and choices that they could potentially make. Well, and closely related to that is the ability to convey your family values to the children in those conversations so that you're having a real dialogue about what your expectations are. And I would argue you give the children a chance to have some feedback on how they want devices used within the family. One of the things that you know I, I point out to people with some frequency is that there is good statistical evidence that the thing that bothers kids most is their parents being distracted by devices. At my home, we have a no phone zone policy at the dinner table, uh, and that's for everyone, right? Not just children, that's for the adults as well. Yeah, I have a great story that I'll that will be my last comment here. I was with a friend and he was using his phone while he was talking and his daughter came up and wanted his attention and he kept ignoring her. And she finally waved her hand in front of the screen to get his attention. And one, that made him frustrated and mad that she did that. But two, it proved that she was very aware that he was ignoring her and paying attention to his phone. And it was just fascinating to watch that uh, exchange play out and really tragic at the same time, because you could see the, the hurt and frustration in both of their eyes with how that device was coming between them very literally. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one thing that we all grapple with, and especially in a pandemic when we're stuck at home. It is very easy to pay more attention to the device, but 
Another thing that I have found is over the last year, so many families have had the opportunity to create habits of quality time together. And that quality time, like you said, Fred, about how it helps to really create and install those family values and the communication increases. While we've talked about a lot of things in the pandemic that could potentially be negative, such as cybersecurity increased risks, there are so many benefits that have come out of this, I think, for the future of education and also for families. Yeah. Any final comments, Fred, before we wrap this great interview up? No, I think this has been really, really useful. It's it's just such a uh, such a challenging time, and I really appreciate your thoughts on this stuff, Wendy, because you know this is something with which we will be grappling, I think, for years to come. Well, thank you both so much for having me today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I know that we could have probably talked a lot longer, (laughs) but we'll be considerate to listeners. Thank you very much, Wendy. We appreciate having you on. Alrighty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, Fred is at Cybertraps, and Wendy is at Oliver underscore DR for Dr. Oliver. If you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us on our live show on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.